Pastor of Emmanuel Baptist Church in Sterling, Colorado. I also serve as an adjunct professor at Colorado Christian University. And today's topic is going to be a little bit um, theological. It's going to be a little bit sensitive and maybe even bring up some, some emotions. And so let me just, just jump right in and, and tell you what the topic is. But then I want to give uh, two, two stories to kind of set it up. And so basically, the big theological question is how do we deal biblically and theologically with the destination of the death of an infant, a stillborn, an aborted baby, or what we would consider those who are mentally incapable. Infant salvation, what happens to a baby when it dies? Or, or, or a person who's mentally incapable, where, where do they go? That's, that's a huge question. So let me just give you two caveats, two stories. This was, oh, I would probably say about 15 20 years ago, before I had embraced the doctrines of grace, um, I was a young youth pastor at a church, and I hadn't even really understood what, what Calvinism or Reformed theology was at all. And the church at the time was not, did not hold to that theology, but um, there was a, a new family that came to the church, and, and he was a staunch Calvinist, and um, it was a Sunday school class. And evidently, uh, a sensitive topic had come up in the Sunday school class about a woman who had basically lost a child. Uh, She had a miscarriage. And they were talking about that in the Sunday school. And and basically, uh, the guy looked at her real coldly and says, well, you really can't be sure where your child went because you don't know if that child was elect or not. He could be in heaven or he could be in hell. And he just kind of -of matter-of-factly told this to the lady. And she was weeping and she was crying and and she... And she came to me because she had a daughter who was in the youth group. And I don't know if, she, if our pastor was gone at the time or if he was on a mission trip. But, but I ended up fielding the question. And she came to me sobbing. She said, is my baby in heaven or is he in hell? Because this guy said that my baby may not be elect. And so I can't bear the thought of my, of my own child that, that I had a miscarriage with uh, being in hell. And so I had to wrestle with how to answer that question. And, and immediately, you know, um, my, my first gut reaction says, no, no, your baby's not in hell. Your baby's in heaven. And I believe that today, and I'll explain why. But I really didn't have the theological categories or the biblical rationale for why I would give her that answer. I gave her the right answer, and I believe I provided some pastoral counseling and care in a time of need. But for me to process theologically and biblically why I came to that conclusion, I wasn't there yet as a young youth pastor the second big issue in my life is um, our our son Zachary Um, he's almost 16 now but when he was about 11 months old he was um, we we, we got the diagnosis that he has a rare chromosome disorder Um, there's about three or four hundred known cases in the world of what he has and his chromosome disorder gives him developmental delays Uh, It causes um, severe autism. It causes epilepsy. And so our son is what we would consider mentally incapable. He's nonverbal. He can't speak. 
Um, he communicates a little bit with sign language, but um, you know, obviously, um, he, he is what we would call a mentally incapable of understanding the gospel. And so, uh, my wife and I, Don, had to wrestle with, okay, what, what what's going to happen to Zachary? Um, obviously, we understand children. Because there's this uh, age of accountability that a lot of times you hear it in churches. And, and by the way, there, there is no age of accountability per se in the Bible that gives it, okay, it's seven or it's four. Um, the, the term age of accountability does not even show up in the Bible. And so uh, we, we, we wrestled with this whole idea of, you know, when Zachary gets older, what happens if he, you know, becomes an adult and he, not an infant or a child, but he's an adult, uh, and he still does not trust Christ for salvation cognitively or consciously, does he still go to heaven because he's not capable of understanding the facts of the gospel and making a personal decision to trust in Christ? And so personally, um, because of my own son, and then pastorally, because this is a question that comes up with people that have struggled with the loss of a child, it's very important to understand biblically and theologically how to answer that question. And so let's just dive into this topic and, and try to approach it. And so the first thing I would want to say about this is that the Scripture does not give a great deal of information on this issue. You cannot go find explicit teaching on this topic. I mean, there's a lot of explicit teaching on justification by faith alone. There's a lot of teaching on the resurrection. Uh, there's a lot of explicit teaching on sexual ethics, um, on, on the Ten Commandments. There's a lot of things that the Bible is very clear and comprehensive on. But this topic, it's not very comprehensive. And there's not a, a lot of information on this. And so we're coming to uh, the scriptures with, with, with not a lot to go on. The other question that you often may ask is, well, you know, how can infants be saved if they never had a chance to believe or trust in Christ? Um, how can they be saved if they never personally put faith in Christ? Um, an aborted baby, a stillbirth baby, um, a miscarriage, or even a, an infant that dies maybe at two or three years old, that they cognitively don't understand the gospel. Um, how can they um, go to heaven? How can they be saved if they never had a chance? Um, and then the other question that we deal with is the same question that, that we struggle with as a family is how can a mentally incapable person, quote unquote, make a decision for Christ when they're incapable of doing so? Uh, how, how will they be saved? Well, let me give you some non-biblical answers to this question. There, there have been some that said, okay, um, let, let's give some answers to these questions that, that, and I don't believe these are biblical. Okay, so here's the first non-biblical answer to this question. One is universal salvation. That's just the whole idea that, you know, well, you don't really have to worry about it because God has set it up to where everybody's saved. Now, obviously, we know the Bible doesn't teach that. Um, not everybody's saved. There's enough teaching about hell. There's enough teaching about judgment. The whole book of Revelation talks about those who dwell on the earth will be under God's judgment. So you, you can't just make a blanket statement saying your baby's in heaven because, after all, everybody's going to be saved in the end. That's not a biblical answer. Another answer that people may give is, well, there's what's called post-mortem salvation. There, there's, an, there's an opportunity after death where God's going to give every person an opportunity to trust Christ for salvation after they die, whether it's in purgatory, whether it's in limbo, whether it's in a place we can't describe. But, but God's fair, and God's going to not um, do something that's not, you know, it's not fair. So He's going to give everybody an opportunity after they die to 
except Christ. The problem is the Bible never anywhere even hints at that. I mean, Hebrews says that we're appointed to die once and after that to face, to face the judgment. The other, more probably more popular answer is what you would find in Roman Catholicism or maybe even in some other uh, groups, and that is baptismal regeneration. That's why they practice what we call baptismal regeneration, baptizing an infant. Basically, the belief goes that you know babies are born with original sin inherited from Adam, and so they are sinful, and so they would go to hell because of Adam's sin. And so the answer to that is let's baptize them, let's christen them, let's um, infant baptize them, and that infant baptism actually regenerates them and gives them grace so that they won't go to hell. They'll be saved through baptism. But the problem with that is the Bible nowhere ever teaches that baptism is the, the means of salvation. Now, baptism is a mode, is an outward expression of obedience to God. Once you trusted Christ for salvation, it does not save you. We're saved by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. And so baptism does not save. It's an outward symbol. And so the Catholic answer is, well, we'll just baptize the baby, and that, that'll cover the baby and allow that baby to go into heaven. And so those are some, some non-biblical answers to the question. Now, we do get a hint um, in the story of David. You know, David and Bathsheba, when David, um, you know, sins against Bathsheba and has Uriah, her husband, killed, and basically Bathsheba becomes pregnant, and then uh, Nathan the prophet goes and confronts David with the sin and tells him the parable. And then in, in 2 Samuel chapter 12, uh, verse 15, the Lord afflicted the child that Uriah's wife bore to David, and he became sick. And it goes on to say that the baby died on the seventh day. David is very upset. He's, he's just distraught. He goes and he doesn't wash. Uh, he doesn't change his clothes. Uh, but then eventually he goes into the house of the Lord and he gets up and finds something to eat. But then in, in chapter 12, verse 23, David said, But now he is dead. Why should I fast? Can I bring him back again? I shall go to him, but he will not return to me. Now that's a cryptic passage of Scripture. There's not a clear teaching there about the fate of David's child. All we have is the text saying, I shall go to him, but he will return to me. And so that's led many scholars and many Bible teachers to say that we have an example from the Old Testament where David understood that his child who died after seven days was in heaven and David would see that child again when he died and went to heaven. And I don't have any problem with that interpretation I think it's valid. I just think that you can't be dogmatic about it because the text, the burden of the text here is not to teach the fate of infants that die. That, that's not the burden of this text. This is a narrative passage in the Old Testament, part of redemptive history that's teaching about David and, and his lineage to the throne and all the things going on with his monarchy. It's not a didactic passage teaching specifically on this theological issue. So you can extrapolate some thoughts from that and say, you know, that's probably a, a good way to interpret that. Uh, but again, you can't be dogmatic. Now, let me give you some other statements before we start that I think are very, very important. Number one, and this is what a lot of people get upset with, but I think that the Bible teaches it, and you need to hang with me as I go through this. There are no innocent 
babies. Everyone is born with original sin inherited from Adam. And that may sound offensive. There are no, you know, innocent babies. And you may think, well, what has a baby ever done? You know, the baby's born innocent. The baby's never hurt anybody. Um, this innocent little baby. And I know what people mean when they say that. And I understand where they're coming from. Um, obviously, when a baby's born, it's not as fully sinful as he could be. He's not coming out of the, his mother's womb, you know, wielding a sword and, and cussing and, and wanting to, um, you know, commit all kinds of evil. But we have to understand what the Bible teaches about original sin and original guilt inherited from Adam that's passed down to every single human being that's born. And so we get this from Romans chapter 5. Romans chapter 5, 12 through 21, is Paul's explicit teaching. Now we have some explicit teaching, some didactic teaching um, about not necessarily the fate of infants when they die, but the, the role of Adam in his sin and guilt being imputed to all of his posterity and how Adam is compared to Christ and how Christ's offspring or Christ's people uh, get in, in imputed righteousness through justification. And so in Romans five twelve and following, we find these words. Paul writes, therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man and death and that one man's Adam and death through sin. And so death spread to all men because all sin. Now, let's just stop and talk about this passage of scripture. We'll, we'll go on and talk about it a little bit more, but this passage of scripture is foundational. Sin came into the world through one man. Well, the one man is the historical, literal Adam. Adam brought sin into the world now you may think well that that doesn't make sense that adam brought sin into the world wasn't eve the one that sinned first and even before that didn't satan sin against god well yes but paul's burden paul's argument is literally in the literal text sin invaded the world Um, obviously sin had already existed because of satan's rebellion and satan was there in the garden to tempt Eden. this text speaks of sin's inaugural entry into the world of humanity sin being portrayed as an intruder into the human race and so what is the the result of sin death death it's punishment death through sin and death spread to all men because all sinned now this is the difficult statement that many people debate what is Paul actually saying, all sinned? Is he saying that we sinned there with Adam in the garden, even though Adam was the one that sinned? Is it talking about our personal sin that we commit that makes us guilty? What is, it, what is he saying there, all sinned? Well, there's some different views. I mean, the heretical view is, the, is Pelagianism. And and so Pelagianism is a heresy, and basically it says that the only reason people die is because they personally sin themselves. It has nothing to do with inherited sin or guilt from Adam. You know, basically they say that Adam set a bad example, and that if you follow his example, you'll get the same thing. So basically, you're born neutral, you're born in a blank slate, you, you can choose to sin or not sin, and if you do choose to sin, the consequences for you personally will be death. But there's nothing that Adam did that's imputed to you or inherited to you. You're not born with anything related to Adam. You sin because you personally chose to sin, and you die because of your personal sin. It has nothing to do with Adam. As a matter of fact... Um, 
Pelagius said it was downright blasphemous to think that we would actually inherit sin or original sin from Adam. Uh, Listen to what Pelagius says. This is a quote from him. He says, They are insane who teach that the sin of Adam comes upon us by propagation. A sin propagated by generation is totally contrary to the Catholic faith. Sin is not born with man, but is committed afterwards by man. It is not the fault of nature, but of free will. That's a key statement from Pelagius, a famous statement. Man is not born with sin. He only commits sin because he chooses to commit sin, and it's not as a result of anything related to Adam. And so that's Pelagianism, and obviously we would call that you know, a heresy. But, but the Reformed, the Calvinistic, the Protestant, uh, the, the, the main probably traditional view within church history has been known as what we call federal or covenant representation that Adam was the federal or the covenant head of the human race. And so just as Adam is naturally our, our, our first, the first human and all of us have descended from him naturally, he also stands as the representative of the human race. And as the representative, as the covenant head, what he did has impact upon what everybody else is going to experience. And so Adam's sin, because he stands as our representative, when he sinned in the garden, it was as if all humanity was there with him. And because he's the federal covenant head, his decision, his sin, his consequences, his guilt is therefore imputed or transmitted or inherited down to every single person who's ever lived. And so we inherit the sin nature of Adam. Now, one of the things that's a big debate is, okay, do we just inherit Adam's sin nature or do we inherit Adam's guilt? Uh, That's a huge question, especially among Southern Baptists right now. There's a group of the the traditional non-Calvinistic Southern Baptists would say, we inherit original sin, but we do not inherit original guilt. The Calvinistic, more reformed view would say we inherit both. We inherit both the sin nature, but we also inherit the guilt of Adam and we're under condemnation. Now let's go on down through the text. It says there, um, as we continue, For sin indeed was, this is verse 13, For sin indeed was in the world before the law was given, but sin is not counted where there is no law. Yet death reigned from Adam to Moses, even over those whose sinning was not like the transgression of Adam, who was a type of the one who was to come. Speaking of Adam being a type of Christ. But the free gift is not like the trespass, For if many died through one man's trespass, much more have the grace of God and the free gift by the grace of that one man, Jesus Christ, abounded for many. And the free gift is not like the result of that one man's sin. For the judgment following one trespass brought condemnation, but the free gift following many trespasses brought justification. For if because of one man's trespass, death reigned through that one man, much more will those receive the abundance of grace and the free gift of righteousness reign in life through the one man, Jesus Christ. Therefore, as one trespass led to condemnation for all men, so one act of righteousness leads to justification and life for all men. For as by one man's disobedience, as many were made sinners, so by the one man's obedience, the many will be made righteous. There's a comparison and contrast that Paul is doing here. We don't have time to go into all of of the comparison and contrast, but what he's basically saying is that Because of the one man, Adam, and what he did, death came into the world, and death came to all, 
because all sin. He also says that because of his one trespass, we have become, uh, it's brought condemnation. So we are under condemnation. We are under death. We are under sin. And it says death reigned and, and that we are under this condemnation. So condemnation means guilt. It means God's wrath. And so there's, a, there's this whole idea that um, of people trying to understand, well, what, what's Paul saying here regarding infants? Does Paul address infants at all? Well, Paul could say that there was a class of people who never sinned voluntarily or personally like Adam, but they still died. Who would this be? Who would, what group of people would never sin voluntarily and personally like Adam, never actually commit a sin, never commit a sin in the body, but actually would experience the result of sin and die? There's really only one category of people, and that's infants or mentally incapable. They actually die. Infants, why do infants die? Why are there stillborn babies? Why are there miscarriages? Why are there um, sudden infant death syndrome? Why, why do babies die when they never have actually personally committed any sins? Well, they die not because they personally committed the sins. They die because they've inherited the sin and the death and the condemnation that came through Adam. It must be because of a sin of another person. They're not suffering death because of their own sin. They're suffering death because of Adam's sin because Adam is their representative in the garden. And so the point that I really want to make is that there are no innocent babies. And so we can't just say, well, babies go to heaven because they're innocent. The Bible won't allow us to do that. The Bible here in Romans 5 teaches that death spread to all because all men sin and all men born are under condemnation. Even little babies are born under condemnation. They're born sinful. They're born inheriting original sin from Adam. Okay, so that's very important to establish. But here's number two. If a deceased infant or a mentally incapable person is to be saved, then it must be on the basis of Christ's atonement. There is no other way of salvation. It still has to come through the atonement of Christ. It's not like there's two categories of salvation. There's, there's salvation on the cross, Jesus dying for the sins of, of people that are mentally capable and who are adults, but for infants and for mentally incapable, there's a separate way of atonement. It's always got to come through the cross of Christ and what Jesus purchased on the cross. Here's, a, here's question number three, or statement number three. If they are to be saved... It can only be because they have been regenerated and sanctified by the grace of God. And we'll get to that in just a moment here. It has to come through the atonement, and it has to be regeneration. There has to be some type of, of sovereign regeneration taking place to cause that infant to be born again. And then number four, if they are saved, their salvation must occur before death. It can't be sometime after death. It, it has to be when God, when God saves that child, either in the womb or as a, as, as a fetus at conception or um, some, maybe in a st like before it's, it's, it's born stillbirth, whatever. God has to save that child before they die. Now, let's just talk about some biblical issues here that will help clarify the issue. Number one, 
Infants are incapable of moral good or evil actions. Okay? Deuteronomy 139, it says, As for your little ones, who you said would become a prey, and your children, who today have no knowledge of good or evil, they shall go in there, and to them I will give it, and they shall possess it. Oftentimes in the Old Testament, especially when God was giving prescriptions to, to the Israelites to go into the promised land, he would often talk about the little ones who don't know their right hand from their left, little ones who don't know they have the knowledge of good and evil. And so here's the issue. Yes, infants are still guilty of sin because of Adam. They still have inherited sin because of Adam. They still have original sin. But because they are not morally able to distinguish between good and evil, they actually can't perform evil acts, okay, outside evil acts. They don't understand what it means to lie, that lying's bad. They don't understand that stealing is bad. So you, so you look at God's moral law, especially in the Ten Commandments. An infant cannot physically, they're incapable of physically, number one, understanding what God's law is, and number two, of breaking that law in their body. But they still have guilt. So given the fact that if they would live long enough, they would sin, not because they're neutral, not because they have a blank slate, but because they've inherited that sin from Adam, and eventually they would act out upon their nature. So their nature is still sinful. They just haven't had a chance to act out on that yet in physical, actual sins. Okay, does that make sense? But here's the second thing. Divine judgment is administered on the basis of sins committed in the body. When the Bible talks about the judgment, the final judgment, we're always judged on sins that we committed in the body. So 2 Corinthians 5.10, Paul writes, For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, so that each one may receive what is due for what he has done in the body, whether good or evil. So, an infant or a mentally incapable person cannot be judged on the basis of this, especially infants, because they have not had a chance to actually do anything good or bad in their bodies to sin willfully. So, how can they be judged on something that they weren't able to actually do? Now, they still have sin. We've got, we've, we've got to establish that. Babies aren't innocent. They still have original sin from Adam. They just have not had a chance to act out on that sin and so be judged in the body for works done, good or bad. R.A. Webb, um, he's, he's written, if you want to look at a book, this was actually back, um, it's, it's an older book. It's called The Theology of Infant Salvation. It's a pretty thick book. Um, he's a Presbyterian. It's coming from a Presbyterian perspective. But he has a, some good points in there. And this is what he says. He says, If a deceased infant were sent to hell on no other account than that of original sin, there would be a good reason to the divine mind for the judgment. But the child's mind would be a perfect blank as to the reason of its suffering. Under such circumstances, it would know suffering, but would have no understanding of the reason for its suffering. It could not tell its neighbor or could tell itself why it was so awfully smitten, and consequently the whole meaning and significance of its suffering being to it a conscious enigma, the very essence of penalty would be absence, and justice would be disappointed of its vindication. Such an infant could feel that it was in hell, but it could not explain 
to its own conscience why it was there. Now, this is speculation, but he's got a good point. He's saying that if, if, only, if infants were only sent to hell because of original sin that they inherited from Adam, then God would have every right to do that because they, they, they've sinned. You know, in God's mind, it would be right. But he was saying the infant would have any understanding why. It would experience suffering in hell, but it wouldn't know why. What have I done wrong? And so there's no knowledge of good and evil. There's no knowledge of what they've done. There's no accounting for the fact that they've committed sins in the body, good or bad. And so there would be no way for the infant to explain why it's there. And so his argument is that obviously um, infants don't go to hell because there's no basis for them to be going to hell because they have not been judged by what they've done, whether good or bad in the body, even though they still have original sin. Now, one thing we have to make clear, this does not apply to pagan adults, okay? We've got to be very careful that we don't switch categories because adults, those who know the truth, those who are responsible moral agents who know right from wrong, either through general revelation that God has laid out by looking up at the sun, moon, and stars. The Bible in Romans 1 says that they suppress that truth, but they're accountable for it. And even their own conscience bears witness that they're guilty. They need salvation. And if they die in their sins, they will go to hell. There's two different, two different ways of looking at it. A pagan adult in the deep, dark jungles of Africa who's never heard Christ will go to hell. An infant who dies will not. And the reason is both a pagan adult and both an infant have inherited original sin and guilt from Adam, but an infant has not had a chance to act out upon that and so to be judged on that and does not know right from wrong, whereas a pagan adult has. Now here's another thing that the Bible gives a little bit of information on, but not a lot. Is there a possibility that God could actually regenerate or sovereignly cause an infant to be born again in the womb? Now, we have some examples of regenerate, Holy Spirit-indwelt infants in the Bible. We've got two. Now, we can't build a full theology over this, but we've got two examples, and so we've got to look at that. Jeremiah 1.5, God says, Before I formed you in the womb... I knew you, and before you were born, I consecrated you. I appointed you a prophet to the nations. God knew, God appointed, God loved, God sovereignly set apart Jeremiah before he was born. And when was that happening? It was in the womb, in the womb. Now, you may say, well, that's, that's, a, that's a once-in-a-lifetime opportunity that God gave to an Old Testament prophet and that only applies to Jeremiah. We can't extrapolate that out and say that God does that for all infants. And I would agree with you and say, okay, I'll give that to you. But you do have an example of God doing something special to a baby in the womb. Now, John the Baptist in Luke 1.15, For he will be great before the Lord... And he must not drink wine or strong drink, and he will be filled with the Holy Spirit even from his mother's womb. Now again, you may say, well, that's special to John the Baptist, that he was filled with the Holy Spirit in his mother's womb. Well, I give that to you. Maybe, maybe that was only for John the Baptist. Maybe that was only for Jeremiah. The point is, is that it's not beyond God's sovereignty to actually do something special through the power of the Holy Spirit to a baby in the womb. And so my argument is God can regenerate 
an infant in the womb. God can cause a baby to be born again. God can apply the work of Jesus on the cross to a baby in the womb and sovereignly cause that baby to be born again so that the effects of original sin, the deadness in sin that, that they would be born with, because David says in Psalm 51, in, in iniquity and in sin was I conceived that we're sinful from conception. God can overcome the deadness of sin. God can overcome the guilt of sin in the womb through regeneration. And so we can't be adamant upon this, but we've got two examples that say God did something to an infant in the womb. But let's talk about how Jesus himself, while on earth, related to little children. That gives us a really good picture of, of, of this whole issue of how Jesus related to little children. In Matthew 19, 13 through 15, Then the children were brought to him that he might lay hands on them and pray. And the disciples rebuked the people. But Jesus said, Let the little children come to me and do not hinder them, for to such belongs the kingdom of heaven. And he laid his hands on them and went away. This is a beautiful picture, really, of Jesus blessing children, accepting children, wanting children to come to him, not hindering them. I mean, the disciples were getting upset. They were thinking that the parents were encroaching upon Jesus' business. And so it's almost like the, the, the disciples were referees blowing the whistle against the parents saying, hey, get back. I'm calling a foul on you. Don't even get close to Jesus, rebuking the people. And Jesus said, let the little children come to me. Do not hinder them. For to such belongs the kingdom of heaven. And he laid his hands upon them. In the original text, it really almost means that it wasn't as if Jesus gave this like mass blessing where he raised his hand, but it, almost like he took each individual child in his hands and personally blessed them. But the, the Greek word there for child, for children, really means infant. Um, in the Greek language, it was used for a child up to about, about seven years old. Now, again, we can't um, determine an age of accountability based upon a Greek word, but that word really can mean infant or toddler. Um, we also see the same thing, the same word being used in Mark 10, 13 through 14, in Mark's version of that story. Um, Luke actually uses a different Greek word, Luke 18, 15 through 16. Now they were bringing even infants, it's a different Greek word, brephos, infants, to him that he might touch them. And when the disciples saw it, they rebuked them. But Jesus called to them, saying, Let the children come to me, and do not hinder them, for to such belongs the kingdom of God. Brephos is an interesting Greek word that means infant, but it was also used of an unborn child, an embryo, or even a newborn. And so even the language that Jesus uses in the Gospels to refer to children it carries this idea that Jesus had a special place for infants, for children, for toddlers. He received them. He blessed them. He welcomed them. He had love for them. And so we see in Jesus this whole idea of God doing a work in an infants. And so it brings us to our final issue. Can an infant actually be saved if... He or she cannot personally put trust in Christ. And here's my answer. The Holy Spirit can sovereignly regenerate an infant, renew their heart of stone with the heart of flesh, 
and cause them to be born again. Now, here's where my view of regeneration plays a very important role in this. I believe regeneration happens before repentance and faith. In other words, God is the one that grants you repentance and faith and gives you the ability to repent and believe. Why do you repent and believe? Because you've already been regenerated. Now, another of you would say, well, no, that's not the way it works. You personally, by your free will, choose to trust in Christ, and then after that, you're regenerated. But I got a huge question. This is the question I struggled with. There's no hope then for my son, Zachary, because he can't use his free will to trust in Christ for salvation. He can't cognitively understand the facts of the gospel. He does not morally know right from wrong. He cannot repent and believe with, on his own. So he's basically left in the water to, to, to not be able to have salvation because he can't exercise faith that then triggers his being able to be regenerate. But if you take what I believe is the biblical view that regeneration comes first, here's the issue. God can sovereignly regenerate a person and they never really have an opportunity to express that in repentance and faith. So here's the issue. An infant that dies in childbirth, a stillborn baby, a miscarriage, an aborted baby, God can regenerate, cause them to be born again they are changed from the inside out, but they just never had a chance to outwardly express that in repentance and faith. Same thing with mentally incapable people. God can sovereignly regenerate them, cause them to be born again. They just never have the ability to express that change of heart through repentance and faith. You and I do. <clears throat> why do we repent and why do we believe and why do we confess faith in Christ? Well, it's because God has first regenerated us. And when he regenerates us, the first act that we do based upon his regeneration is we repent and we believe. We call upon the name of the Lord. We trust. We, we, we have <clears throat> the capacity to do that, whereas a baby or a mentally incapable cannot. And they're still regenerated on the basis of Christ's atonement which means that when Jesus died on the cross, He purchased the salvation of those infants, of those people, and the Holy Spirit applies that atonement to them in regeneration. So, so here's the conclusion. Here, here's the bottom line conclusion. All children who die in infancy and are mentally handicapped, whose intellectual and moral judgment cannot surpass that of children, are indeed saved. This has been the historic position of Reformed Evangelical Protestantism, Southern Baptists, Presbyterians. Um, the Westminster Confession uses the term all elect infants. I just believe that all infants are, are elect. Uh, it's just the, 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 the viewpoint I've come down upon. And again, what I've stated here, I've, I've probably given you the, the, the majority probably all of the verses, all of the teachings that the Bible gives on this subject, and it's not very much. And so we're coming to this topic with not a lot of information. And so when we deal with this, number one, we've got to deal with it theologically. We can know our limits of what the Bible says and what the Bible doesn't say theologically. We need to be pastorally sensitive. 
people that are struggling with the death of a child, it's probably one of the most traumatic things a person can go through. And so sometimes we need to, yes, let our theology inform how we do ministry, but we also need to be pastorally sensitive. And we need to make sure that we're saying the right things at the right time and we're providing comfort and we're providing consolation and we're giving hope to parents. Uh, you know, there's there's been some funerals I've had to do over the years where I, I did a funeral of a six-month-old child. And that was that was pretty, you know, a pretty traumatic and sad thing. She was a twin. Uh, she got sick and her twin lived and she didn't. And so the parents were, you know, were distraught over this. And so I had to walk through that issue with them theologically as well as pastorally. And so, and even personally in my own life with my own son, Zachary. And one thing that, that gives me hope with my son is that, you know, I don't know what God is doing in his heart. I don't know the depths of how God is, is, is reaching him, is speaking him. Um, my son has this joy. I don't know if it's just because of his autism, but uh, and I would say, Don and I, my wife say, he's about the closest thing to innocence there is. And we know when we say that, that we theologically believe in original sin and original guilt, and we're not saying he doesn't have that. But there's this, this, this childlike innocence to Zachary. And, and so sometimes because he can't speak, I want to I know what's going on in his mind and his heart. But I have the trust that, that God through Christ has saved him, God through Christ has, Christ has died for my son and God has applied that work of atonement to my son through regenerating him that, that I can say, um, my son, Zachary, is born again. He's born again. He is regenerate. Now, has he been able to express that in repentance and faith? No, but he will go to heaven based on the fact that God has overcome his original guilt. God has overcome his original sin through the cross of Christ, through regeneration, and God has secretly and sovereignly done that in his own power and in his own way. And so I just pray that this has been helpful to you. Maybe you're a parent listening to this and you have lost a child. And you know people have told you, yes, your child's in heaven and you have that hope and you have that, that confidence, but maybe you just didn't know theologically why or, or how you believe that. Or maybe you're listening to this and you're helping a friend that's going through this and you want to give some answers. And, and so I hope this has been helpful. Um, this is a little shorter podcast, but I just really felt like this might be a topic that might be timely that, that many people may be dealing with. So again, I thank you for listening to Understanding Christianity. Again, I'm Pastor Sean Cole. Um, if you want to go on iTunes and give us a review and rating, I would appreciate that. If you want to contact me, seancole.net is the website. You can see my email, my Facebook, my Twitter. I'd love to hear from you. Um, again, thank you for listening to Understanding I can't even say the name of my podcast. Thank you for listening to Understanding Christianity. Um, I'm teaching through the book of Hebrews on Wednesday nights, and so you will see future podcasts come up of the teachings in Hebrews. And I'm also starting a new sermon series on the Gospel of John on Sunday mornings, and so you'll see those show up on the podcast as well. So you'll see Hebrews and John, and then as I have time in between the teaching, my normal teaching to, to do podcasts like this, I will put those up there to help you, my listener, to get more understanding in the doctrines of Christianity. Thank you for listening. Have a great day.